We continue on in our, our message here of, from the book of Romans, and we're looking in uh, chapter 6 this time. Uh, favorite chapter of mine, uh, my, my most favorite chapter in, in Romans, though, is 12, <laughs> chapter 12. I like that quite a bit as far as it just gives uh, practical, practical advice for Christian living, basically. And if you haven't uh, gotten into memorizing Scripture as much, I would encourage you to do Romans 12. That would be a great chapter to find some verses there to just tuck away in your brain because uh, as you hide away Scripture that way, God will bring it out and He will remind you of those promises that are found there. But uh, um, Romans 6, though, is a very good chapter as well. We're going to look at this portion of Scripture here, and I trust, again, that God will be speaking to your hearts, and as He does, my prayer is that we would act in obedience to His promptings, whatever He's speaking to you about. The well-known theologian Bob Dylan, uh, (laughs) folk singer, most of you know, he said, the times, they are changing, and uh, his sentiments are are still true. Sometimes it it seems that change is the only constant in a constantly changing world. I know that uh, at the place that Jameson works at Fred Meyer's Distribution Center, their, their slogan is, change is here to stay. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting if you think about that. But undoubtedly, all would agree that tremendous change has occurred on all fronts of society. The religious part, the political part, the social part, and economic part. What further surprising changes do you imagine will occur? I mean, you think about that, what else could happen? And once we ask that question, be ready, because something else will happen, some more changes will occur. Change is is enlightening, as well as frightening. Uh, If we pause too long to consider the many changes that we've all experienced, we could quickly be overwhelmed by the, the, the quickness of newness. When newness come on, comes on uh, into our life, we, some of us say, yeah, bring it on, we're ready. And some of us go, oh, whoa, 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 too fast, too fast. We, we, we experience those things, and it's, it's surprising how quick that comes. But in the eye of the storm, there blows a, a quiet, refreshing breeze of peace that provides reassuring hope for those unknown days ahead. This comes to us through the power of Jesus Christ, who does not change, as Hebrews 13, verse 8 tells us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He offers serenity and stability to face critical challenges of the coming days with confidence as we are changed from glory to glory in Him. So why should the Christian want to keep from sinning? Could be the question that might be asked of you, maybe It's more rhetorical. Doesn't it seem that God's grace is seen better by the fact that that He continually forgives those who confess their sin? His grace looks greater when we sin more. But maybe we we have the picture all wrong. I trust we do if we have that kind of thought. Maybe we should view the greater evidence of God's grace as as His ability to keep us from sinning. Paul certainly seemed to say this was the case. Once we choose life in Christ, we die to sin and its authority over us. We become united with Christ in conquering sin and death. So let's take a look at this picture and apply the truth to to this picture. 
What does newness of life really mean? And let's take a look at this in this portion of Scripture, Romans 6, the first seven verses. And we'll see here that newness of life means freedom from sin. Newness of life means freedom from sin. In verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live, it, live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So verse 1, what shall we say then? Paul began chapter 5 with the word therefore, meaning on the basis of what I have just written, I can announce the following. And the question that opens here in chapter 6 serves a similar purpose but it offers a, a bit of a twist in this as well. Here Paul described a hypothetical scenario. On the basis of what I have just written, someone might think the following. And so he goes on with verse 1, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And near the end of chapter 5, Paul had implied that a multiplication of sins never catches God off guard. And he graciously offers more grace to cover increased sin, as we saw in chapter 5, verse 20. On that basis, someone might argue, well, if grace is good, and everyone recognizes that obvious fact, that grace is good, shouldn't we do everything to produce more of a good thing, even if, it, even if what we do is sin? And so in verse 2, he answers that question emphatically, <laughs> by no means. He clearly rejected any logic that said the end of increasing grace justified the means of greater sin. It goes along with the, the fact that the end never justifies the means. Paul certainly wanted everyone to hear of and to receive God's grace. But part of entering the grace relationship with God was dying to sin. In verse 3 and the next verses, Paul worked with several similar levels of reality. Baptism, particularly by immersion, offered a wonderful picture of the spiritual death to self and resurrection to new life involved in salvation. And as new believers disappeared under the water in baptism, it is as if they were being lowered into their graves, and their reappearance represents resurrection. And of course, Jesus' literal death and resurrection serve as a key component of a believer's salvation. Now, Paul skillfully paralleled death to sin with baptism into Christ Jesus. If a believer is baptized into Christ Jesus, as he mentions in verse 3, representing burial with Christ and death, then how much more baptism represents than just death to sin? In verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. So baptism with Christ represents not only death to sin, 
but new life for all who would be buried with him in death. So we must remember, though, that death is a prerequisite to life. You need to die in order to live. Very weird paradox, new thought. In verse 5, as we are united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And Paul knew with certainty that Christ died on the cross and then from within the tomb was raised to eternal life. With equal assurance, Paul knew that believers experiencing the, the spiritual death and resurrection of salvation would, after, after their physical deaths, also participate in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our hope for life is realized in our complete death to sin. Our sin is symbolically buried in a watery grave when we are baptized. And if you haven't been baptized yet, I want to talk to you about that. If you're a believer in Christ and you have not been baptized, I want to talk to you about that. Because I believe it's something that we need to be, first of all, in obedience with, because Jesus was baptized. But also, too, it gives a proclamation to those around us of what God is doing inside us, in our lives. But realize that our Wesleyan-Arminian tradition does not teach that baptism in and of itself is a means to salvation. If you you get baptized, you don't become a Christian. That is, in itself, another direction where you go ahead and you, you come to God in prayer and you receive Him as Savior. And once that is done, then you are baptized because then you are telling people what God has done for you. It does does teach that that baptism is a tremendous example and a witness to the watching world that our life of sin is history. It's been buried. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. And in verse 7, anyone who has died to sin has been freed from sin. So how can a person live in sin if he or she has died to it? It it boggles my mind sometimes. Christians, if they're supposed to die to something, how are they living in it anymore? A so-called sinning religion is not God's design. He doesn't call us to come to church on a Sunday, get right with God, and then go live like we want to on the weekdays. And come back on a Sunday and get right with God again and go back and do what we usually would do before we receive Christ as Savior. It's not supposed to work that way. That, that's not the abundant life that God talks about. If anything, that's the sick life because it's just gets worse than teacups at Disneyland. Christians spinning around between sin and grace and sin and grace, it, it, it should cause you to throw up, really. But we're not called to a sinning religion. Verse 6 says, For our old self was crucified, dead, and buried, so that the body of sin might be done away with. Having found an image that wonderfully helps people understand salvation, Paul continued to run with that image. What does it mean to die to sin? And as the Amplified Bible puts it, it means that our old unrenewed self was nailed to the cross so that we might be made ineffective and inactive for evil. Let me say that again. It means that our old unrenewed self was nailed to the cross so that we might be made ineffective and inactive uh, for evil. 
So the old self dies when we truly repent, when we ask for God's forgiveness, when we place our faith in Him alone for salvation, and consciously die to sin and the deliberate, habitual practice of sin. That's the Christian walk, where we have our sight on Jesus, not on the temptations that are around us, not on those things that are going to trip us up, not on those things that, that, that are going to help us fall into sin again. As if Paul did not already have enough images to juggle, he threw in one more. Verse 6 there, he said that we should no longer be slaves to sin. In one sense, new Christians are delivered from sin within, the death of each one's sinful self. And at the same time, new believers are freed from the external mastery of sin. No longer are we slaves to sin. Newness of life means freedom from sin. And we must seriously realize that the call to repentance is also a call to renounce, give up, and forsake the old life of sin. You don't go back there again. And at that point of decision, we receive by grace, through faith, eternal life in Christ. This brings us to the next portion of Scripture here in verse 8. And the next uh, point Newness of life also means being grafted into Jesus Christ. Newness of life means being grafted into Jesus Christ. Follow along with me in verses 8 through 14. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, we cannot, uh, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died... He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Our hope for everlasting life stems from Jesus' death and resurrection. A resurrection we're going to be celebrating here really soon. And since the death we died, we died with Christ, and in verse 8 it talks about, we then know we will one day also live with Him. The death Christ conquered will never overcome Him again. He died once to death. But in verse 9 it says, but since Christ was raised from the dead, He will never die again. Unlike those whom Jesus had raised from the dead, Lazarus, uh, Jairus' uh, daughter, the widow's son and Nain, each of whom died a second time. Christ cannot die again. He lives forever. He's interceding for us. He's got a place prepared for us. He's, he's got that place that he's been preparing for Lois, and now she's enjoying that place in heaven. If you've placed your, eternal, your, your trust for eternal life in Jesus Christ alone, and, and you've received Him as Savior, God has a place for you in heaven. He's preparing that place, getting it ready for you. Because one day, one day, 
we will be reunited with all those loved ones that have put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life and are there enjoying all that heaven has to offer. And when I think about that, I, I just get a little envious. <laughs> Want to be there. Want to enjoy that as well. No more pain, no more suffering, no more problems. What a place. He lives forever. Christ lives forever, and He's there in heaven preparing that place for us. And since all this is true, all this is true, we need to live like it. Live like it is true. Verse 11, count yourselves. It means to, to think, speak, and act as though this were true. Because it is. <laughs> there are two things that are true here. First of all, with respect to sin, we are dead. That's truth. We are dead. Since we have died with Christ symbolized by the covering of the waters of baptism, sin no longer has a claim on us, nor power over us. And secondly, with respect to God in Christ Jesus, we are alive. And coming up out of the waters of baptism, we have been raised symbolically with Christ to the new life of faith. Live not to sin, but to God. Both this death to sin and this life to God are true. And as we live in that, that dimension, sin's power is broken. God's power is established. Verse 12 says, Therefore, again, what follows is Paul's admonition to live out and practice what we know in our heart and mind. And along in verse 12 do not let sin reign in your mortal body. The Greek here implies the protection of the body from sin. Certainly most of our sins inflict punishment upon our bodies, though we do not always notice the effects immediately. But the, the desire and the purpose to sin do not originate in our bodies. But once, once one decides to sin, the act is carried out by the parts of our body. Instead, in verse 13, it says, offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. A conscious and willful turning from sin to God trains our bodies to new habits so that what is true in theory becomes true also in practice. As verse 14 says, sin shall not be your master. And that word instruments in verse 13 should actually be translated weapons. Continuing the image of, 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 uh, of this whole thing. Service to our old sovereign sin was a service of death. Now that we are in the service of the Lord of life, it would be treasonous and still deadly to allow the members of our bodies to continue to be used as weapons in the service of sin and death. Have them as weapons of righteousness instead. The underlying reason all this is true for the believer is Paul's original assertion in verse 14, you are not under law, but you are under grace. And since the law cannot justify, only those are justified who come to God by the prior working of God's grace. Having come to God by grace, we remain under God's grace. So growth, growth in our new life in Christ occurs when we are grafted or united with Christ. In the realm of nature, what really happens when, when one plant is grafted to another? 
what really happens is that the grafted plant begins to grow strong. And it begins to draw its life support from the host plant. We too, if you've read John 15, we also are to draw our very life support and our sustenance from, from the vine, Jesus Christ. We are, to, we are grafted in and we are to draw from Him those things. And with our lifeline in Christ, our life draws a, a new and refreshing source of perpetual energy. Life possesses a new quality of meaning and existence. Not merely a life new in, in, in a point of time, but in Christ and only in Him, we become literally new creations, new individuals who are able by His grace to live an entirely new existence. When you receive Christ as your Savior, you were changed. You were changed. You no longer did what you used to do before you received Christ as your Savior. You were opened up to new thoughts as you read God's Word, new principles that guided your actions, that helped you walk as a Christian. Only then do we understand, though, and appreciate what a gentleman, a journalist of the early 1900s who became a Christian, by the name of Malcolm uh, Muggeridge, nice last name, he says, he calls this, he says, the true purpose of our existence in the world, which is quite simply to look for God, and in looking to find Him, and having found Him, to love Him, thereby establishing a harmonious relationship with His purposes for His creation. We become that new creation, loving God, following Him, doing what He tells us to do in obedience. And as we continue to grow in Christ, we begin to realize and begin to crystallize the, the truth that we are not sanctified sponges sopping up God's goodness, but we are pointed instruments, weapons, if you will, through and by which His mission on earth is accomplished. So newness of life means freedom from sin, it means being grafted into Jesus Christ, and finally, newness of, of life makes us instruments of righteousness. Look with me in verses 18 through 23. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 18 reemphasizes the fact that as human beings, we will obey something or someone. There's someone or something in our life that we obey, that we will, we will follow. The Christian has made the right choice. Follow the living God. We have been set free from sin, as verse 18 says, whose end result is death, that, that sin is death, and we become slaves to righteousness, whose end is life with God. 
by saying in, in human terms, in verse 19, Paul signals his, his use of all this metaphorical language going on. He says, because you are weak in your natural selves, he, he mentions that the message must be delivered with the, the greatest impact. Because sin is the cruelest master of all. And this impact needs to be huge in people's lives. You know, many Gentile Christians were converted from a highly immoral paganism. And so the word impurity in, in verse 19 is an accurate description of many of their former religious practices. Impurity focuses on the, the moral state of the person involved. And, and, and he, ver, he mentions in verse 19 also slavery to impurity. And this focuses on the refusal of that one to give attention to God and the things of God. You continue on in that impurity. You're a slave to it. Such a way of life can lead only to further moral and spiritual and physical deterioration, which verse 19 describes as ever-increasing wickedness. And the result, the end, is death. You probably have met people in your life that are heading that direction, spiraling down in life, and everything compounds on itself in that person's life. But they're not making a change. They're continuing on in the wickedness, in the bad choices, in the lifestyle that they should not be involved with. And it just continues on in ever-increasing wickedness until they hear the good news of Christ, until they hear the gospel. Then they have a choice. They have a choice and they've been exposed to a freedom, a way out. Those people need to hear that. Maybe you are the person to tell them. Maybe you know somebody at, a, at your workplace, or maybe you know somebody in your neighborhood. Maybe you know somebody at school, wherever you might be at times and usually, um, usually find yourself at. Those places, those people that you meet normally, they need to hear the good news of the gospel from you. They need to see it in you so that they see that there's a difference and they receive Christ. They, they need to see that Jesus can make a difference in a person's life so that they don't continue on in that ever-increasing wickedness and finally come to that end result of death. When the Christian presents his or her members as slaves to righteousness, the result is sanctification, being separated to God and cleansed by the Spirit of God. And on this path, the destination, the end result is life. So you have death and you have life. And in verse 20, Paul again reminded his readers that we as human beings must serve some master and we can serve only one master at a time, whatever that master might be. Verse 20 says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. As humans, we tend to be concerned with how a given set of circumstances or course of events will benefit us. What's going to happen to me for the good? What might happen to me for the bad? What are the consequences? What are the benefits of something that will happen to me? And in verse 21, Paul asked his readers to reflect on what the benefit was to them when in the past they were serving sin and committing acts of which they were now ashamed. It's really, really important to consider the question for all ages because the benefit for serving sin 
is death. It's not really a benefit, folks. <laughs> you will die in your sins. A death that causes total separation from God. Now, we have God with us. God is with us. He will never leave us. He's here. He won't forsake us. It's hard to believe a godless existence. I don't even think I want to go there. I don't even think I want to think about that. I can't even imagine something like that. Especially when you think the way this world goes sometimes. All the different things that happen in this world. The crime, the murder, the horrible situations that go on. And God is still with us. <laughs> imagine if God was not with us. Separated from God. Imagine what would be going on. Not really a benefit, <laughs> serving sin. And the word translated benefit in verse 21 is literally fruit. He uses the word fruit there. What fruit were you then growing? Basically the question. It's an agricultural metaphor appropriate to a world where the majority of the human race was engaged in food production. But whether planting fruit trees or engaged in some other pursuit, Humans prefer to get something good in return for what we give or, or we do. Whatever you put effort in, you want to find benefit from it. And if I'm going to put time into studying for a test, I want to get a good grade. If I'm going to put time into practicing my free throw shots, I want to make sure I get a high percentage when I shoot free throws. When I spend time with my spouse, I want to make sure, I want to make sure that the relationship will grow. That all that comes there, we get, go into stuff, and we, we, we think, well, I'm going to put it into this. I want to get something. I want to get a benefit. I want to get fruit from this. All these things, whenever we're engaged in those things, we, we look to what the return is for us. Being now set free from sin and have become slaves to God, what is the benefit? What is the fruit? It's holiness. It's sanctification. It's separation to God. It's, it's cleansing. The result of all this is eternal life. That's the path that we go down. And it's important to notice that word result or end in both verse 21 and, and 22. These are not temporary results. If we pursue sin to its end, its end is death. If we pursue, pursue God and His righteousness to the end, the end is eternal life. So the question of benefit, or the bottom line, is answered pretty clearly in verse 23. That verse summarizes Paul's case to this point. Sin results in death. Walking with God in this life results in eternal life. Pretty clear. Pretty clean cut. No gray area there. And there's still one point to notice here. The benefit of sin is considered wages, while the benefit of following God is considered a gift. This brings us full circle to the beginning of Paul's line of reasoning. And we all begin in a deficit position. So deep, it's, it's impossible to get out. Those who think they can earn their righteousness by fulfilling the requirements of the law 
will never earn enough wages to bring their account up to a zero balance. It's not going to happen. You're always going to be in the red. In an entirely different position are those who acknowledge that neither the law nor their own works of righteousness will get them anywhere with God. It's not what they're going to do. It's not how many times you come to church. It's not how many times you go to Sunday school. It's not how many times you drop off a care package to the homeless. Although those things are good. But if you're trying to do those things to gain righteousness or gain heaven, doing it for the wrong reason. With nothing nothing in, in their hands, they're able to accept the gift of God provided through His incredible grace. Verse 23, eternal life, Christ Jesus our Lord. To receive that, that gift. Let me go back to a word found in verse 19, holiness. Holiness is, is, is the life of freedom that grows out of total commitment and obedience to God as we submit unreservedly to God. We can be used by Him. Our relationship with the Lord will grow leaps and bounds. And as our relationship grows, His sovereign will and compassion desires match our own. His purpose becomes our purpose and His plan our plan, whether we fully understand either one of those. We begin to sense how Christ would respond to circumstances. And, and, and we ask the question that Charles M. Sheldon asked in his book, In His Steps, which was used for commercial purposes too, that phrase, but what would Jesus do? Been used so many times, you almost don't like hearing it anymore, but it still holds truth. What would Jesus do? And our desire is to respond in that same way, whatever the cost. We will do what Jesus wants us to do. Let me remind you that in your bulletin, it shows very clearly in the back part of your bulletin, our purpose, our mission, our vision, for people who are committed to following Jesus. If we're following Jesus, then we're committed to doing what Jesus does. <laughs> what would Jesus do in these situations? We do what He does. We find out what it is and we do it. We follow Him. That's our commitment here as a congregation, as a family. We are followers of Christ. And as we do that, we grow in Christ and, and we learn more what it means to walk as a Christian. Holiness is Christ-likeness. It's practicing obedience to and an imitation of God, just as Jesus did while on earth. Are we going to do it perfectly? No, you're not. We're human. We make mistakes. This mind is not perfect. <laughs> and not just my mind, <laughs> your minds too. It's not perfect. We're going to do stuff we wish we didn't do. We're going to say things we wish we didn't say. The point is, is that how long does it take for you to realize that was not what you should have said or that was not what you should have done and to come to God and ask for forgiveness? That time period should grow really short as you follow Christ, as you begin to imitate and begin to practice in obedience what God has for you. As we put our Christianity into action, we demonstrate for all to see that we are His instruments of righteousness, weapons of righteousness, that we belong to Christ. 
The world needs to see that there's good news. The world needs hope. This, this, this place is really hopeless that we live in. And people need to see that there's a hope inside of us. And we need to be ready to give a reason for that hope that is within us. Help people understand that there's more to this life than just going day in and day out doing the same old thing again, but that there's a God that loves them and has called their name and wants a relationship with them. And that relationship is the best thing ever. We need to let people know about that. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. I'm going to share in a couple songs, and as they do, let me close this up here. Giving up a life of sin positions us to be able to grow in Christ. The desired result of that growth is an obedient, consistent commitment to serving God, followers of Christ. And as God's instruments of righteousness, we can experience the ongoing benefits of new life in Christ. So where are you in your relationship with God? Where are you in your relationship with God? Are you fully and freely realizing a new life in Him? Do you realize that God offers the gift of eternal life to you? And it's only a prayer, a prayer away. You ask Him to come into your life, clean up that sin. And then you make that total turn away from what you've done in your life to towards God and what He has for you. And by His grace... And his, his, his empowerment, you walk in faith and you live in obedience. Where are you in your relationship with Him? Whatever the case may be, ask, ask God to help you grow stronger, more mature in Him as you're walking as a Christian. And as you daily graft yourself deeper into Christ. Ask Him to help you with that. Maybe you need to renew your decision of receiving Christ as your Savior. Or make a first-time commitment to be an effective instrument of righteousness in your home, with your family, maybe right here within our church. Instrument of righteousness. Maybe within your neighborhood, your community, those people that you rub elbows with. Ask God to help you be an effective instrument of righteousness. Ask Him for grace. Ask Him for guidance to help you reveal to others the, the newness of life you have experienced in Him. People need to hear that. And as always, this altar is open if you want to come and pray. If you want to come and let God do His work in you, the question is, will you act in obedience to the Holy Spirit's promptings? That's all I ask, that you just obey God, what He has for you.